we are in a series called Game Changer, and it is a look at the life of Christ through the eyes of the people whose lives He forever changed. And today we're going to talk about angry pigs, all right? Mark chapter 5 or Luke chapter 8, they both tell the story in about the same kind of detail. So you can read the story when you get home in its entirety. I just want to tell you the story this morning. Steve Bartman was sitting quietly in the first row down the left-hand field line at Wrigley Field on October the 14th, 2003. As an ardent Cubs fan, he was there for game six of the National League Championship Series between the Cubs and the Florida Marlins. It was the eighth inning, and the Cubs were leading three to nothing. That was really good news, and, and, and that's when it happened. The game-changing moment. Luis Castillo hit a fly ball down the left field line. Twelve years later, the picture is still famous or infamous, depending on your perspective. Moises Alou goes up to catch the ball. Steve Bartman reaches out to snag a fly ball as a souvenir. And, well, you probably know the rest of the story. In the twinkling of an eye, Bartman becomes perhaps the most hated fan in the history of American sports. <laughs> he becomes an outcast. The Cubs went on to lose that game and the series. The Cubs were only five outs away from going to the World Series, and the whole thing began to unravel in the eighth inning. Bartman had to be escorted out of the stadium for his own safety while people pelted him with insults and the trash from their food. As many as six police cruisers parked around his house for protection. Bartman wore disguises, changed phone numbers, was encouraged to go into the witness protection program in Illinois, and was offered asylum in the state of Florida. <laughs> in the ensuing years since, he has turned down more than 200 news media requests, including Dr. Phil, refused to autograph a picture for $25,000 and has basically lived a quiet life in the Chicago area working for a financial service consulting firm. He remains a Cubs fan, but has never been back to Wrigley Field. Becoming an outcast is a game-changing moment, but it is seldom positive. However, in the story we're going to explore this morning, being an outcast has a wonderful ending. Mark and Luke give us more details than Matthew, but to really understand this story recorded in these Gospels, you have to step back a little farther in the day than the miracle we're going to talk about. And, and, and Jesus says something rather offhanded. He says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side, meaning to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, now we just blow right past that comment because it sounds like to us the same thing that we'd say, let's go over to the other side of the street or let's go over to the other side of town. And, and we don't think anything about it. But this, this was a big deal. 
the other side of the Sea of Galilee was not Jewish territory. It was Gentile territory. It was a region called the Decapolis. It's a Greek word. Deca means ten. Polis means cities. Decapolis means ten cities. These were Greek cities under Roman control, and Gentiles lived there. There were Roman soldiers that were garrisoned on that side of the sea. And at the time of Christ, this is a flourishing area. Exquisite temples and huge amphitheaters for entertainment dotted the landscape. The arts and literature flourished here. Sports were big in the Decapolis. And all of this was just right across the Sea of Galilee, about five miles from Judea. And in the land of the Decapolis, there were lots of pig farmers in addition to the rest of this because the pig was considered sacred there. So the disciples, when Jesus said, let's go over to the other side, the disciples loaded up their fishing boats and they took off for the other side. And it was probably about mid-lake when this ferocious storm erupts. Now, some of these guys are fishermen, make their, their living on the lake, as you know, and, and, and they are scared for their lives. And the whole time, Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat. And finally, they just, they just go back and they shake him awake and they said, Lord, don't you care that we're about to perish out here? And Jesus said, where's your faith? And he stands up and he, and he speaks to the storm and it instantly grows still. And, and they keep sailing to the other side. Now, the waves grow calm, but the disciples don't. I mean, when you're, when you're scared to death, it takes a while to, to calm down. Plus the fact they have just now seen Jesus calm the storm, and, and there is another intensity inside of them as to the man in whose presence they are traveling. The time of their departure was late afternoon or early evening, which means they reached the opposite side, the Decapolis area, about the time that the daylight was fading. It was dusk. And the area where they landed is an area filled with, with, with caves and, and tombs. Now, the disciples are exhausted. They are soaked from the storm. They, they pull their boats up onto shore. They probably are trying to, to press out the wrinkles on their robes that are, that are soaked. And it's about that time they look up and they find themselves in a graveyard. Now that just ratchets up their fear a few more notches because no good Jewish man would, would dare to land or walk through or get close to a graveyard because that would make you ceremonially unclean. You got the picture? These guys are way out of their comfort zones. And unknown to the disciples at this moment in time, if they aren't scared enough, what they don't know is that there is a wild maniac that lives in the caves and the tombs who is possessed by demons. And just as they start, I, I've got this picture, they are just huddled, 12 guys, huddled in a mass that are shuffling along right behind Jesus. They will not let him get any farther than a reach out in front of them. And they're shuffling through this graveyard. And about that time, they hear something like, Oh, and then that's followed by screech and howl, and you can just see the hair on the back of their neck stands up, and they are just absolutely petrified, and without warning, this maniac comes out of the caves and the tombs and starts running at full speed, shouting at the top of his lungs at Jesus. Now, if I had been there, I would have passed out on the spot. 
And I suspect the disciples were pretty close to doing that as well. You see, there's something about fear that when it grips us, it takes over. And it's universal. Fear is universal. We all experience fear. As a matter of fact, we live in a culture handicapped by our fears. From hydrophobia to claustrophobia and every phobia in between, we struggle with our fears. Then you add to those phobias... These possibilities, economic chaos, layoffs at work, terrorist attacks, dirty bombs, random shootings, teenage pregnancies, drug addiction, broken homes, unexpected disabilities, incurable diseases, and being left alone in this world when the person you love most dies. So no wonder we're scared. And you may be thinking, well, we have every right to be scared. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. In his book, Sacred, Scared to Life, Douglas Rumford cites a study that explains why fear should not dominate our lives. 60% of our fears are totally unfounded. 60%. 20% are already behind us. 10% are so petty, they don't really make any difference in life. Now, if you've been adding up, we're up to 90%. Of the remaining 10%, 5% are real, but we can't do anything about them. And the other 5% are real, but we can do something about them, so we ought to do something about them, which means that only 5% of the things we're afraid of are really legitimate fears. So when you come upon that 5%, you just remember these words from 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Would you say that one out loud with me, please? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When you are scared to death, you just remember that the one who lives in you cannot be defeated by anything because that's what this story tells us. And and this is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, and maybe it's partly for that reason. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the people who lived in the Decapolis area. Who are these folks? Well, according to Ray Vanderlaan and other scholars, the rabbinic tradition in Jesus' day says that the Decapolis was the area where the seven nations of Canaan settled after the promised land was taken. The Hebrew people are on their way out of the captivity of of Egypt, and God says, I'm going to give you the promised land. And there were nations in that promised land that they had to conquer. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy 7.1 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. So when they drove them out of that area, they they displaced over into the Decapolis. Paul, in Acts chapter 13, says that God overthrew the seven nations and gave the land to the Israelites. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is, this story takes on greater significance. And and we'll come back to that in just a moment. The area is also home to a Roman legion, uh, which is about 6,000 soldiers. And the the symbol of this particular Roman legion is that of a boar's head. That's way out of the comfort zone for the disciples as well because what was the most unclean animal in the mind of Jewish people but the pig? 
So the disciples find themselves in a godless land, standing among unclean tombs, under the military protection of the hated Roman, whose legion here was the sign and the symbol of a pig head. I doubt they have ever been so creeped out as they are at this moment. Now hang on to that information too. We'll come back in a moment. Though the crowds had flocked to see Jesus throughout Judea, everywhere Jesus went, there were great crowds to meet him. But when he lands on the other side, he is sort of like an outcast at this moment. Nobody, nobody is there to greet him except for this wild, demon-possessed man living in the graveyard. And the demons had robbed him of everything important, friends and family and home and health and mental clarity. He was an outcast from his community. And the people of his community had even tried to chain him up so he couldn't do any harm to anybody else, couldn't even do any harm to himself, and he just snapped the chains like they were nothing. He suffered great pain. He was bent on self-destruction. He had no peace he knew no tranquility or calm until this evening when Jesus shows up in the Decapolis right there in his graveyard. Many people I know struggle with the whole concept of demon possession or demons in general. But I suspect most people are probably like the two boys who were walking home after church hearing a sermon on the power of the devil. And one said, do you really believe in the devil and demons? The other boy said, no, nah, it's probably like the tooth fairy. It's just your dad. I, I cannot explain to you this morning demon possession, but I do believe it's real. I've spoken to too many credible scholars and too many missionaries who are eyewitnesses to things they cannot explain any other way. The Bible tells me about it. Jesus warns me about it. The eyewitness accounts of others affirm it. So I do believe. I, I can't explain it, but I believe. You see, when something defies our sense of logic or contradicts what we have experienced ourselves or what we can explain scientifically or what we know by our five senses, we have a hard time embracing it as real. But I want you to remember that Satan is not bound to our understanding. And when we are skeptical, we play right into his hands because he has a lot more freedom to work on us and in us when we are skeptical about him and his dominion. So if you think demonic forces are the fodder of fairy tales, think again. And, and answer this question for me, will you? Which is worse, a man whose possession causes him to break the chains that bind him in a graveyard? Or the man whose obsession causes him to spend hours on pornographic websites and is chained to an addiction he cannot break. Tell, tell me which is worse. A man who lives in the shadows and calls it home or a man who secretly meets another man's wife in the shadows and destroys both of their homes in the process. We think we're too sophisticated to believe in demonic forces, but I wonder if we weren't, off, weren't worse off because of our sophistication. And folks, were it not for satanic influence? Were it not for demonic influence? How do we explain human beings that can douse a caged man with gasoline and set him on fire and then film it and send it out to the world as something that they're proud of?
apart from satanic evil influence and demonic influence, how do we explain lining up 21 Egyptian Christians and beheading them just because they're followers of Jesus Christ? How do human beings do that to some other human beings apart from the influence of the evil of Satan himself? We need to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world whose lives are on the line because of their faith. Because, folks, if we do not pray for them now, who will pray for us when our lives are on the line for our faith someday? Because I'm here to tell you, the forces of evil will stop at nothing to win. The demoniac runs at Jesus, drops to his knees in front of Jesus, and shouts at the top of his lungs, Jesus, Son of the Most High, in God's name, do not torture us. Isn't this interesting? They know who he is. They recognize his power and his authority and his dominion. James tells us that in his book. He said, even the demons believe and tremble. Jesus said, what is your name? And, and he says, legion. For we are many. Legion, by the way, is a loaded word on the other side of the lake. The demons beg him again and again not to send them into the abyss. The abyss means bottomless. It, it is a reference to where they will spend eternity. And they're saying, don't send us there yet. Send us into this herd of swine. And Jesus relented and gave them permission. And they went into the herd of pigs right there beside him. And they ran over the hill, off of the cliff, into the sea, and every one of those 2,000 pigs die. These are angry pigs. This seems like such a loss to us, doesn't it? All that good meat lost for nothing. <laughs> our Wednesday evening Awana class for our Sherwood kids uh, this semester, the, the lessons are built around questions that the, that the elementary kids submitted. Now, I, I've read through the list. They are, they are really intriguing questions. And I don't know who wrote what question, but, but this one really grabbed my attention. <laughs> the question reads like this. What does the Bible say about war, friendship, hope, sportsmanship, and bacon? <laughs> I like that bacon part. I, I really do. You see, we, we look at this and we say, oh, oh, so valuable. But we forget how abhorrent the pigs were to Jewish people at that time. As for the Canaanite herders, they saw this as a huge loss because the pig was not only a sacred animal, it was also the symbol of the Roman legion that was there and the power that reigned in the Decapolis. So why would the demons do this? Why would they go into the pigs and over the cliff and into the water and drown? Because I think the demons were trying to get Jesus in trouble with these pagan people, and it worked. You see, this was a part of their livelihood. This was a part of their investment. And when they sent the pigs over the cliff, Jesus lost respect with the people because this was their possessions. But Jesus knew that the loss of 2,000 pigs could not begin to compare with one man's tortured soul. What kind of a price tag can you put on the soul of any human being? Jesus says it's worth more than life itself. And through this whole ordeal, the disciples must have been mortified. 
demons and suicidal swine. This encounter with Jesus was a, was a battle between the forces of light and darkness. Just a short time earlier, they'd seen Jesus battle the elements. Now they've seen him battle evil. Who was this man that not even angry waves or angry demons or angry pigs could defeat? I love this story because perhaps more than any other, it demonstrates him as the master of all things. There is just absolutely nothing that is too great for Jesus to handle. And at this moment in the story, he becomes master of peace. When the pig herders witness their income going over the cliff, they hurry to tell the owners, and the people of the area hurry out to find the pigs gone, and they find the demoniac sitting there, clothed in his right mind, rational and calm. Before he had been naked and he had been cutting himself on the stones and he had been a wild man, suddenly he is the antithesis of all that he was because he has met the master and he has peace that passes all understanding. Do you have that kind of peace this morning? Besides being clothed, which all of you are this morning, do any of those other terms apply to you? Rational logical, calm, peaceful. I like this person's perspective on peace. My therapist told me the way to achieve true inner peace is to finish what I start. So far today, I have finished two bags of chips and a chocolate cake. <laughs> I feel better already. And yet most of us know that such an eating spree could only bring a momentary peace before a wave of guilt washed it all away. Since 1919, the nations of Europe have signed more than 200 peace treaties. Each treaty, it seems, was broken more easily than achieved. From the year 1500 B.C. to 1860 A.D., more than 8,000 peace treaties were signed between nations or tribes intended to remain in force for a long time. The average treaty has lasted only two years. Two years. Peace of any kind is fragile, both globally and internally. Actually, we're more familiar with guilt than we are with peace. You, you realize that, don't you? We surrender to blame. We battle with remorse and repentance. We are more at home with our guilt than we are with peace because we have fallen victim to the new pandemic. Are you familiar with this pandemic? It's called the uns. We feel unsettled, unloved, unfulfilled, unhappy, unlucky, uneasy. We are beaten down because we are unsuccessful, unmerciful, ungrateful, even unfaithful. We can be unaccountable, unbearable, uncomfortable, undesirable, and we've come to the conclusion that we're also unforgivable. Do you have the uns? Because there is only one antidote for that plague, and it's the master and the peace that he can give you. I don't know what you're struggling with this morning. I know you're struggling because I struggle. All of us struggle. Family, work, school, personal issues. There is a peace from Christ that removes the uns and leaves us loved, content, and forgiven. It is interesting when people came out to see 
what had happened, they could not see past their fear. You would think, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think? Here's this group of people that come out. Okay, the pigs are gone. We're sad about that, but wait a minute. This is the guy that terrorized our community. Here he is sitting in his right mind. He's close. What happened? How did this? You mean to tell me this Jesus did this? Wouldn't you think at that point in time they would have said, oh, Jesus, you've got to stay here. I've got a broken life. I've got a broken home. I've got a broken family. I've got a broken job. My life is broken. Can you do for me what you did for him? But their fear, their fear was greater than their logic at this point in time, and they asked him to leave. 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love casts out fear. But do you realize that the opposite is true? Fear casts out love. And these people couldn't see past their fear to recognize the love of God in their midst. And they said, you need to go. And since Jesus never forces himself on anybody, he leaves. And as he's getting in the boat to sail away, we read this in Mark chapter 5. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged, begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, you go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Now I want you to fast forward to Mark chapter 8. We're, we're, we're farther down in the ministry of Christ. Sometime later, Jesus returns to the other side of the lake. He goes back to the Decapolis for a second time. And, and guess what? This time, he is met by huge crowds that come to greet him when he lands. First time, there was no one. Second time, there are hundreds and thousands that are there. The community people ask him to leave, but when he returns, they come flocking to see Jesus. Now, what made, what made the difference? I'll tell you what I think. I think it's this demoniac who said, you cannot believe what this Jesus did for me. He told it everywhere he went until the people couldn't wait to find Jesus again. He allowed the demons to enter the pigs. He left the community people when they asked him to leave, but the one, the one request he did not grant was the man said, I want to go with you. And Jesus said, no, you're not going with me. You're going to tell your story so others can find peace. Wow, had he done his work? You see, now, now don't, oh, don't miss this. It is on this side of the lake. It, it is in the Decapolis that Jesus feeds the 4,000. Now, remember earlier, just, just a short time earlier, he had fed the 5,000. Remember, and he'd had the, uh, the, 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 uh, the fish and the loaves from the little boy's lunch, and he divided them up and fed 5,000. Do you remember how many leftover baskets they collected? Twelve. Twelve baskets of leftovers because there were 12 tribes of Israel. It was God's way of saying, I'm going to take care of my people. Now we're on the other side of the sea, and, and, and Jesus, they, they have been with him three days. There's another one of those three-day stories. Don't miss those three-day stories. And, and Jesus, at the end of that three days, said, we need to feed these people. And the disciples said, how are we going to do that? Now, you say, hadn't they just seen him do that over here at five? Yes, they had. But they're not in Jewish territory now. They're not at home. These are pig-eating, idol-worshiping, 
Jew-hating Gentiles on this side, surely Jesus wouldn't do the same thing for them that he had done for his own people on the other side of the sea. And they have seven loaves, seven loaves. And the 4,000 sit down and the 4,000 are fed and they take up, do you know how many baskets they take up afterwards? Seven. How many Canaanite nations were in the Decapolis? Seven. It is, this, it is this powerful moment. Jesus says, there are 12 basketfuls. I'm going to take good care of you. You can't, I can't do too much for you. And over here he says, I've got you covered. You're my people. I love you too. I will be with you. What I have done for my people, I will do for you because everybody matters. And I am so grateful for this part of the story because as a Gentile, as Gentile, we know that Jesus has loved us and is our master as well. Powerful story. I will be forever grateful that Jesus fed the 4,000 just like he fed the five. Jesus took his disciples way out of their comfort zones to teach them two vital truths. He is greater than any power or force at work in this world. They learned that there wasn't anything that Jesus couldn't top or topple. No power of hell itself. And secondly, all people in the world matter to him. So this is our challenge. Surrender our fears and pain to the master. Let him rid your life of those things or thoughts or thorny issues that possess you. Secondly, take his peace to those who are on the other side. Step out of your comfort zone and make a difference with those who so desperately need to know Jesus and the peace that he can bring to the other side of the street, to the other side of the neighborhood, to the other side of town, to the other side of the world. You go to the other side and tell others what great things the Lord has done for you. You know, you don't have to have all the answers. You just have to tell them what he's done for you because that changes everything. Last thought. I know nothing of Steve Bartman's faith, but I so hope he knows Jesus Christ as his Savior. You see, if he knows Jesus, Steve Bartman's no outcast. And if he knows Jesus, while he may be unwelcomed at Wrigley Field, he will be welcomed at heaven's gate. And that's the only thing that matters. Is he your master this morning? Because if he is, you can handle anything with him. If he isn't, you're as lost as angry pigs going over a cliff without Jesus Christ. <laughs>